You're listening to And hey everyone, welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Riva Yu. And we are here today for an author chat with Sushni Patel, um, the author of A Drop of Venom, a new YA fantasy novel from Disney Hyperion's Rick Riordan Presents, which is a retelling of the Medusa myth taking place in an Indian mythology-inspired world. Um, as always, Books and Boba is supported by our listeners at patreon.com slash books and boba, um, where if you join as a Patreon supporter, you can gain access to our Books and Boba uh, members-only Patreon server, uh, where you can talk to us and fellow club members in real time, as well as our monthly bonus podcast, Boba Chats. Uh, so definitely check it out if you want to support us at Books and Boba. Yeah, I was really excited to read A Drop of Venom because I am a Greek mythology girly and uh, Medusa is definitely a myth that has stuck with me as as a woman, um, especially now that we're like in post Me Too movement because Medusa has kind of become like an emblem for female rage and female empowerment. So I was all for a YA book that was going to dive into such a you know, heavy topic. Um, and I was really surprised that this was under Rick Riordan and uh, Disney's imprint because we are so used to seeing middle grade magic from that imprint. <laughs> yeah, lots of dark topics and themes uh, explored within this book, as well as a lot of action, too. This is a very action-packed um, story about heroes and monsters. And it's almost hard to believe that um, prior to this book, um, Sushni mainly wrote um, YA and women's fiction rom-coms. Yeah. Um, but obviously, for those who are planning to read the book, there there is a trigger warning in the beginning of the book. But uh, it is it is a book that is very focused on sexual violence, trauma, healing, and um, just proceed with caution if any of those are your triggers. But without further ado, here is our chat with Sachini Patel. We're here with Sajni Patel, an award-winning author of women's fiction and young adult books, including The Trouble with Hating You, Isha, Unscripted, Sleeping in Dubai, and most recently, A Drop of Venom. Welcome to the show, Sajni. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me. I wanted to ask you, like, you're calling from Texas, right? No, I'm actually in Hawaii. We just had oh an God. earthquake here. <laughs> oh, wow. Same. We actually ago. just... We actually just had an earthquake ourselves like a couple minutes ago, actually, before getting on this call. Oh, no. Where are you guys at? We're in, we're LA. in LA. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. So we, we had like a lot of rain and now we're back to our original programming of earthquakes and sunny days. So um, lovely. I I took the earthquake as a sign of this conversation going really well. So there's that. <laughs> um, but we always like to ask our authors like, like their background, like how did they get started in in writing? Were you always a storyteller? And as someone who uh, did grow up in Texas, right? Like, um, what was that like for you? Yeah, so 
I immigrated from India to Texas when I was four. So I am pretty much a Texan. I lost my accent a bit though. And the entire time of growing up, I was really into reading. I was really into like Marvel comics and Stephen King at an early age. Um, and I started writing when I was 10 years old, short stories. And then I moved into poetry. I wrote my first novels, which were really bad in high school. And my family, I feel like just being Indian and being an immigrant, was I was really pushed into something medical. That's just what my family and I had decided for a long time. So I stopped writing for a while and then I returned to it because just felt like a part of my soul was missing. That's how crucial writing is for me. It's very therapeutic um, and it's just part of my life. And it took a long time for me to get published. It took a long time for me to understand craft and writing and just honing all of those skills. So I ended up with an agent about 10 years into seriously pursuing writing. Um, with, my, with my current agent right now, she's fabulous. She signed me on a YA called The Knockouts. And then The Trouble with Hating You actually ended up being published first. And that was only in 2020. So I can't believe it's only been just under four years since my debut came out. And A Drop of Venom is my seventh book, which released um, a few weeks ago in January. Yeah, seven books is that's quite a that's quite a catalog you're you're building up. Um, I'm curious um, to know more about the period between writing a novel in high school and picking it back up. What were you doing in between there, and what brought you back to writing? I was in college, like I went to the University of Texas. I did the whole college thing. I got married, and I just started. Um, I, don't, I don't quite remember exactly what pushed me back into writing, but I did feel like a part of me was missing, and it was this creative part of me that. I had severed for several years. And so that really pushed me into discovering my creative side again. And once I started writing, the stories just just flowed and they wouldn't stop. And it was shortly after I got back into writing that I considered trying to get published. So I, I went the, the route of trying to get an agent, trying to get traditionally published. And, you know, this was um, this was years ago. So I wasn't really I didn't really understand the concept of self-publishing. So I was really trying the traditional route, which ended up working for me, even though it took a while. You were a pandemic author then, if, you're, if your first book, Trouble With Hating You, came out in 2020. And that's not a scenario that a lot of debut authors uh, see themselves being in. So how was that experience for you? The experience wasn't totally bad. It wasn't all negative. Because, <laughs> you know, um, being a debut author, one of the cool things about being a debut author is that we formed a, uh, like a little group for the debut authors of that year, both for adults and YA. So I was able to gain the experience of other authors um, in the, in that pandemic year, because yeah, my book released maybe two, two to four months after the pandemic began here in the States. And other authors had it way worse than I did. So I feel like I kind of just cruised by the trouble with hating you received, um, I think good support considering the, 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 the landscape of the world <laughs> and publishing at that time. And one of the cool things that happened because at that time I was living in Texas, what, what Austin decided to do, because Austin has a great literary scene, they decided to take all those debut authors in Texas and put them into, um, this thing called the mayor's book club, which usually the mayor's book club picks one book to highlight every year. But that year they highlighted all the debut authors. So I got 
a good bit of exposure then. I got really good support um, through Austin and through this, uh, the mayor's book club. And I ended up being recognized in some literary magazines, um, you know, in Austin and some other places. So it wasn't half bad considering what could have happened and considering what had happened to other authors. Yeah, that's really cool that your uh, town had like that support for um, debut authors and authors who are coming out with books during the pandemic. Um, but like switching gears, can you tell our readers briefly about A Drop of Venom? Yeah, so A Drop of Venom is my first fantasy. It's young adult. It is basically a retelling of Medusa, but with a feminist twist and set in an Indian inspired world. So it follows um, in anachronistic dual point of views. Um, it follows Manisha, who goes through some of the things that, that Medusa has gone through in, in her mythology. And then we have Perseus, who is the slayer sent to kill Medusa slash Manisha. And it's it's told in alternating timelines. The way that I set it up was um, you see what's happening in real time with Manisha as a victim of sexual assault. And then you see how the narrative changes on the other side. Yeah. Um, I couldn't help but notice that all your past works, like you mentioned, have been either YA or women's fiction rom-coms. Um, so curious to what led you to want to write a, a fantasy novel. Um, and also because this book was published by um, Rick Reardon Presents, uh, which is an imprint that kind of specializes in stories that remix um, cultures and mythologies. Was this um, retelling of Medusa with Indian mythology um, something you had in your back pocket? Or, um, yeah, what led you to write this fantasy novel? So fantasy has always been my first love. I grew up on X-Men and Marvel Comics and Stephen King. You know, So I have um, that background of darker things and really fantastical things. So I've always had fantasy in my blood. And I think I just kind of fell into the romance genre by accident. It's not, it wasn't something I intended. It was, you know, the book that got picked up by my agent and publisher. And I kind of worked in, the, in that bubble for a bit. And when I, I had this idea because Medusa's story has always stuck with me, especially how her narrative changed and how the victim became the villain. You know, she became the monster because of who told the story. So Medusa's story had always been in the background. And when I think of some of Indian, um, of Hindu lore, I realized that these two aspects really fit together. And there were some things that really triggered the story. And I just, I, I ran it by my agent. I told her, this is something that I'm very passionate about. Let's go with the story. And she was very on board. I was kind of surprised. I was expecting her to say, let's keep with the romance genre, you know, let's build your brand kind of a thing. But it's like, okay, six books in, I have a brand for romance. Let's, let's get into something. I think that is really a really important story to tell. And when we submitted to Disney, we didn't realize, or at least I didn't realize that Rick Riordan Presents had moved into the YA fields. Um, it was all middle grade. So it, it was just kind of a turn of events that landed the book into Rick's hands, which I was really excited about. I'm still excited about it. Like, I still can't believe that Rick Riordan has read my book and loves it. So, Yeah, I mean, Medusa 
it seems to be a tale that sticks with a lot of uh, young girls and women. I think, like you said, it's a story that changes uh, depending on who tells a story. And I'm just curious as to like you, you said you were triggered to to write the book. What were some of the tri- triggers? Um, like, did you see any um, other retellings that inspired it or seen any art? So one of the the topics hinted on in the trouble with hating you is sexual assault. So that's something that I can speak personally about. So that was one thing, but the thing that triggered the actual storyline, because it came together really quickly once it was triggered was, uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with the statue of Perseus holding the head of Medusa, which is, you know, is in, is in Italy and it's on display there. And it's basically um, Perseus, this quote unquote hero who slays Medusa beheads her and with the statue he's holding a sword in one hand and Medusa's head in the other and he's regaled a hero well a few years ago there was an unveiling of a statue in the front of the New York City courthouse of the opposite it's Medusa holding Perseus's head so if you I, I really encourage everyone to to go check out this statue because her look her expression is so formidable and fierce and it says you know, someone else came to hurt me, but we're not going to have that today. And so she took she took care of Perseus, someone who was coming to not only kill her, but to use her body in a different way than she'd initially been used. Yeah, that statue, uh, Medusa with uh, head of Perseus. Um, I heard that it was like you you said it was like uh, exhibited in front of a courthouse, and I remember it was during the Harvey Weinstein uh, trial when he was being tried for sexual assault of uh, various women. So yeah, like I I thought maybe you might've been inspired by that statue. So it's really cool that you uh, mentioned it. Yeah, that's a very powerful statue. And and you're right. It was exhibited for the Me Too movement, for all the sexual assault survivors who've who've had to keep quiet, who society has told them they don't have a story to tell, who have been, you know, living in fear, traumatized, and the perpetrators have never been held accountable. So the statue is saying, we're not going to keep doing this. We're going to hold assailants accountable for what they're doing. Yeah, I think the Medusa myth is a really interesting um, story to build off of because it's something that pop culture has taught us is one way. And, you know, a lot of us think of that story as um, one of a hero slaying a monster. Um, but the full story is there in the text, right? Like Medusa was a priestess who got cursed to become a monster by the Greek gods because of a very petty reason. And those themes of like who gets to decide who the monsters are, um, you explore that really well in your book. Thank you. This is Medusa's is one of those stories where she was failed, you know, by by people that she honored in society and just everyone around her. And it's, as you mentioned before, it's a story that really sticks with a lot of girls and women. Yeah. Cause in the original myth, uh, Athena curses Medusa and transforms her into a monster with serpent hair as punishment for being raped by Poseidon. And, um, and it's out of like, it's out of jealousy as well. But in your book, you, change that story. You make Manisha's transformation seem more like an awakening uh, rather than a punishment or curse. Uh, so I'm, I'm just curious as to like uh, why you decided to write Manisha's power that way. What were some challenges when you were developing her uh, story arc? Yeah. So one of the things that I really looked into was how a survivor deals with trauma. Um, and for Manisha, the way that she's dealing with trauma is she's understanding what, ha- trying to understand what happens 
and how it doesn't lessen her as a person. Because in the book, just like in society, she's taught that women who are touched are defiled. Women who are raped are raped because it's their fault. Like it's their shame to carry. It's their burden to always carry. It is never about the assailant or the person who did this to, to her. And I wanted her to grow into someone who decided what she's going to do with her power. Because I think if Medusa had more mythology behind her, because she doesn't really have that many lines of mythology. I think if she was given more mythology, she could have been that person that, that used her power for good or tried to do something with the power that she was given instead of just seeing it as a curse. In A Drop of Venom, oh, actually, let, let me step back for a second. With Perseus, per, the reason Perseus went after Medusa was because the woman he loved, Andromeda, was being sacrificed to the Kraken because her mother, I believe, likened her beauty to one of the gods and the gods took offense. Like going back to what you said before, the gods were petty mythology. <laughs> it wasn't really petty. <laughs> And so they're like, okay, you can't just say your daughter is as beautiful as a god. So now you have to sacrifice her to save your town. So sacrifice her to the Kraken. Perseus was given some gifts. One of the gifts, a shield, so that he could find Medusa without looking at her, was actually given to him by Athena. And Athena was the one who cursed uh, Medusa, right? So he went after Medusa and killed her so that he could use her head to turn the Kraken into stone and save Andromeda. And, and I wondered, Perseus, what if he had just asked Medusa? Like, what if he had just found her and, and said, you are a woman who was hurt by a man, was hurt by society, but you have an incredible power. Would you be willing to help me defeat this monster to save another woman? And I think Medusa would have said yes. Like Medusa would have taken the opportunity to quote unquote, prove herself to society that she wasn't a villain, that she wasn't a monster. So that was one of the things that, that I really thought about as I was writing a drop of venom. What if someone had just asked Medusa for help and the whole story would have changed? Yeah. So you have this base, which is the, the Medusa and Perseus myth, which is Greek mythology, but you also infuse your book with a lot of Indian mythology, Indian culture. Um, can you talk us through your process in, you know, creating that world so medusa has the snakes for hair right even though manisha doesn't have that in my book but in hindu mythology there's this benevolent race of of beings called the naga who are sometimes depicted as half human half serpent or sometimes they can shape shift from serpent to human and i knew that those two pieces fit together and until i saw that statue i didn't know how to make that work but it just seemed like a very natural fit and, and there seems to be beings like snake beings across many cultures so that was one of the things that that i brought into the story uh, with the greek mythology part i just kind of took the overall story of medusa but then i added um you know monsters and lore from different parts of, of india the the lush environment of jungles the canyons um there's a a turtle with a biosphere on his back, you know, which is kind of representing the world turtle um, depicted in, in Hindu mythology. Uh, there's there's mentions of elixirs of, of immortality. That's part of, of the mythology. Um, and just like all these little tidbits. So there's nothing very striking or very sudden about the shift in mythology. It's just the entire world is created with like little tidbits from India. Yeah, I was 
when this book was pitched to me, I thought it was so cool that we were seeing um, a Greek mythology tale that's like very familiar with the mainstream audience being told from an Indian uh, mythology lens. And uh, it just like made me question, why is it that we are so knowledgeable when it comes to Greek myths and not our own uh, folk tales and legends. Was that something that, I mean, now that I know that you immigrated from uh, India, was uh, mythology something that you grew up with? Yeah, mythology was something that I grew up with, mainly because there were these epics, like, um, you know, 12-part movies <laughs> that we would watch <laughs> as kids based off of the epics. And it's like, oh, it's really cool. and. Yeah, those little bits um, always hung with me. And then, um, you know, there were movies based on the Naga and Bollywood and all that stuff. So these are things that that stuck with me. But again, like living in the Western world, we are all so familiar with these stories because these are the stories that keep circulating, right? In the middle school, um, I was, I took Latin as my foreign language class and I was part of the Latin team. And we went to Latin decathlons where we competed <laughs> um, in Latin. So in mythology was a place that, that I always excelled in. So that's where the, for me, that's where the Greek mythology part really grew on me. And yeah, just growing up in different cultures, just seeing the similarities between Greek and, and Hindu mythologies has always been there. I just never really thought much about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you said there are similarities. You have like Nagas who are, you know, half serpent, half um, people. You also have like mermaid creatures in, in Indian mythology. But what is a creature that is very unique to Indian mythology? Oh, my. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. I, I know I can answer what I made up <laughs> taking <laughs> something that I, I recently learned about. Um, I think. The mythology that I grew up with, based on the epics, they are more about demons, like in the form of humans instead of actual monsters. Um, that's what I grew up with, like the Asura, which is something that I'm writing about right right now in the second book to the series. Um, and I think that's really interesting because you're seeing monsters in human form, so you're seeing what mankind or humans can do to each other that makes them monsters whereas in mythology they were originally more demonic or monstrous and in the epics they're they have the abilities and they act like humans so i wouldn't say there's a monster that really stuck out with me but the asura are a type of demon and human form <laughs> that really stuck with me yeah, so like we mentioned, your book covers a lot of dark but very timely topics about, you know, um, sexual assault and misogyny and um, violence against women. Can you talk to us about threading that needle of, you know, telling a story for young adults, uh, but also maintaining those dark topics and, and violence? So originally, because of the darker themes, I couldn't, I didn't know if this was going to go adult or YA. So I tried it one way and the other, and YA is what ended up happening. and. I thought when I sold this book to Disney and especially Disney being Disney, I thought surely they're going to have me cut back on the violence. And they said, no, no, you know, you can go as dark as you need to, to tell a story. And so I really appreciate that because a lot of the story has to be dark. And it's not dark for the sake of being dark or violent for the sake of shock value. It has to do with the story. It has to do with the times that's happening in the story. And 
in a bit of、um, conversation of what happens in real life because, yeah, like you said, these are dark themes, and and I don't think there's anything that's very gratuitous, but it is definitely on page. So readers should be aware that these things are definitely on page. Yeah, and、uh, in the beginning of your book, you do have trigger warnings and. Was that something that you always planned to have, even if it went into adult、uh, fiction? Because you said that you like weren't sure if you, it would go into YA or adult at first. Yes, I I was definitely planned on having the trigger warning.、Um, I had trigger warnings actually for the trouble with Haiti New, which is you know an adult rom com, but it does deal with sexual assault. And I have I've had trigger warnings in other adult books because of depression or anxiety things like that. Because I wanted to make sure that. Readers are aware of certain things that could trigger anything negative in them before they go into the book. Because I would hate for a reader one to be triggered, and then two、uh, to not be able to finish the story or to never pick up any of my books because I didn't warn them. So I think, as a reader for myself, I appreciate trigger warnings because I just don't know at any point in my life if there's going to be something that's going to impact me negatively. So I would never want to leave a reader. In a negative space, was there anything that you had to change、uh, to tailor it to a younger audience? Like, did you have any trepidations about exploring such a heavy topic like sexual violence and、uh, trauma to teen readers? I did have to change that a little bit, as in now I have younger、uh, characters, so the way that they deal with things are a bit differently. Things are a bit newer for them. Uh, they're not as wise to the world. They don't have as much experience or exposure to the world. So the way that my characters deal with the trauma was something that that I had to think more about when I decided to go YA. Whereas when it was, if it was adults, I would assume that the characters, because they're older, have been exposed to these type of dark themes a bit more. So that was one of the things. And then、um, Brathish's character, the Slayer. As an adult character, he was more like the Witcher from the show, where he's just kind of hard and、uh, gruff and just kind of hates the world. <laughs> But with the YA version, I did make Prathish a bit more、um, comedic and lighthearted, even though he's dealing with his own trauma.、Uh, we did mention that your past books have been romances and rom coms, and in some ways, this book is also kind of like a romance, right? Your two main characters kind of share like a Mister and Missus Smith type of、um, relationship, where they both like each other, but both are on actually opposing sides, right? Manisha is a naga who is considered a monster, and Patush is someone who hunts monsters. And the story follows their perspectives, as you mentioned,、um, across different timelines.、Um, Both in the present and the past. Just want to ask if you can talk about your process in both the pacing of the story across, you know, different perspectives and timelines, as well as you know how you develop the、uh, the romance.、Uh, you know, this is the first time I I rarely write books in dual point of views anyway, because from the man side, because there's always like in my books there's um there's a woman and a man, and I just don't know what men think about. So I really had a hard time usually with with the male point of view. And this is the first time that I've ever written in an anachronistic timeline. But there wasn't really a lot of hardship in writing this way. It just came naturally. Like that's how the story formed for me because I knew on Manisha's side things had to happen from her point of view. But then I also needed to show how the world changes the narrative from Prather's point of view, which does take place 
a bit in the future. For him, it's the present. For her, it's the past until they, they converge and meet at the end. And to see how these two people have come apart and then are brought back together, but with completely different growth and completely different ideas in their head of what they're expecting to see in each other when they finally meet again. And as far as the romance part of it goes, it wasn't really intended to be much of a romance. Like I really fought to stay away from anything romantic. I was like, no, I just want to go dark. I want to have battles and fight scenes and and just blood and gore. Um, But the romance came in and uh, I guess some people appreciate that. I mean, we've talked to authors who've had that same experience saying that they didn't expect these two characters to fall in love, but they just wanted to on the page. So they just let it happen. So Yeah, they had chemistry and the chemistry could not be uh, denied. So it just happens on page. Uh, I really did thought the changing timelines and uh, changing POVs really worked in your favor. I like the fact that Produce's... Um, like POV, it was set in the future uh, after what happened to Manisha. And it was really interesting to see how stories got warped by the patriarchy, pretty much, uh, changing the woman from victim to monster. Um, Was that always your plan when it came to um, separating it from like future and past and... um, changing the story changing the narrative based on who told it yes it definitely was because the whole point of the story was to, it's to show how the narrative changes depending on who's telling the story and of course the patriarchy and in this world we have a strong patriarchy that is just really against women in general and going back to medusa's story like how different is her story if she's the one who told it and how different is the story because of the one that we know today and to show also that the things that Manisha was doing, you, you can decide for yourself if, if those are wrong things, incorrect things. And the whole point of the story is to not only show how the narrative changes and how easy it is to vilify a person, especially a victim, especially a woman, but to also answer the question of what is a monster? Like what truly makes a monster? Who is a monster in this story? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to ask you like, because Manisha is on this path for uh, vengeance, like, what are your personal thoughts on like the principle of an eye for an eye? Do you think there is a difference between accountability and uh, revenge? There is definitely a difference. So I wouldn't say that Manisha is on a quest for vengeance. She's on a quest to find her family, but things happen along the way where she's just like, I can't sit back and let these things happen. So at some point, maybe in the beginning, it was more about accountability and helping others because she knows that situation because she's been in that situation. But then at some point it does get to the part where you're like, accountability may not be enough. Like the system is not changing the thoughts, the people, they're not changing. So is it wrong? <laughs> and that's one of the things that, that, that Rick Riordan mentions in his uh, letter at the beginning of the book. Is it really wrong? Would you, if you had these powers, would you exact vengeance? And, and I think like that's such a powerful question because I feel it in my bones that <laughs> if I have that kind of power, like, you know, I, I don't know, would I be a hero or a monster? I don't know. There's such a fine line, but 
how can you force accountability on people that do not see it for themselves? This is the kind of the question. I think there's something to be said about how um, it seems like revenge stories have become very much in vogue lately in media, um, both in books and also, you know, on TV and movies. You know, we see this trope a lot in Korean dramas, for example. And I think there is a lot to relate to someone who, you know, is seeking vengeance for being wrong by people in power, right? Like, I think that's something that a lot of us can relate to, actually, you know, living in today's late capitalist society. Um, can you talk to us about developing that, like, that revenge story, right? Um, and he's just someone who has very justified reasons to be angry. Um, and in the process of pursuing that vengeance, um, she often ends up doing things that have unintended consequences. Yeah, I, I did think about the purpose of what her actions entail. Like, it, you know, especially toward the end, because she has so many moments where she is causing infliction <laughs> on others. But what is driving her? I didn't want her to just be about vengeance, but the situation that she kept being placed into kind of pushed her, you know? So I don't know. I, I don't see it as vengeance. I see it as throughout the entire book, she's just defending herself. But then, then again, that goes back to what makes a monster. And it really is not just about the narrative, but how you see the picture and the pieces. I, I do like how in your world, uh, there's like different levels of patriarchy. Like uh, when Manisha is at the temple, obviously she is, uh, in in like the center of patriarchy, they tell her that you need to have a specific voice uh, when you when it comes to speaking to uh, the patrons there. You have to uh, be obedient, soft spoken. And then as she ventures further and further from the kingdom, she's seeing the differences in how women are being treated and what types of um, freedoms that they have. Uh, can you tell us more about the women in your world? Uh, like, I know sisterhood is a recurring theme in your book. Yeah, so that whole thing was um, was not done on purpose. It it kind of, when I sat back and realized it, I was like, wow, that's really interesting that this is the way the story unfurled. But the further Manisha gets away from the temple, the more liberated and the more equality we see um, among the women. Um, which I think, which I think is really cool. Now that I realize <laughs> that's what happens, but yeah, it's different... a tale of uh, empires and colonization. As as <laughs> as uh, like as you venture further away from the empire, you realize, oh, like these uh, Western trappings, they weren't always there in in like our uh, native cultures. Yeah, exactly. Because her her city, the place where she's from, is way outside of these borders. And it's completely different from what the patriarchy looks like in the center where she's from. Uh, and sisterhood was a was something that I had to think about as well because I wanted to make sure, like in the beginning, you know, she's, she's kind of uh, put into a situation partly because of another woman. And I didn't want that to be the thing that sticks with readers, like women on women violence. So I made sure that Manisha was able to see women of various levels in their society and various levels of confidence and various levels of everything as she moved around the kingdom. So we have some very strong women like the Yakshini that she meets by the river, who's kind of like opens her eyes to what really happened to her and starts the question of what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about this person who hurt you in such an awful way? Maybe that's where vengeance does begin. Was like, 
Are you going to go track him down? Are you going to hold him accountable? Are you going to do to him what he did to you? But then there's also women who think a bit more logically about helping each other and helping others. And then there are women, especially in the outskirts of the kingdom, who are warriors riding (laughs) rhinos, like, you know, pregnant women who are riding rhinos as warriors protecting their land because they don't have their men anymore. Um, and, and in Manisha's, Manisha's own city, in the very beginning, she talks about watching her, her mother and aunts, um, even her father, people who were scholars and gardeners turn into warriors because that's what the world turned them into for that moment in time. Like they rose to the challenge. They rose to become something else. And that's like, a, I think, another interesting level to see women to see what, what they have been their entire life. Like, for example, her mom, and then now seeing her as a goddess of war because she's out there fighting soldiers, like fighting three men at the same time to protect her daughters. Yeah, I, I think this book easily could have been uh, just told from Manisha's uh, point of view. But I think what makes it interesting is is you have Pradish's, um POV as well, and he is navigating the patriarchy as well. Can you tell us a little bit about writing from a male POV uh, where the setting is patriarchal and they're like, wait, like there's some toxic masculinity we need to dismantle here. Yeah. So as I mentioned the earlier, the writing from the male's point of view is harder for me. So I really had to, from the Manisha side, it's, like, it's easy because that's what I've experienced in my life. But yeah, just channel side, that female rage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, well, what would I do? How do how do what how do I feel? How would I feel if I was in the situation? But for him, I really had to put in examples from his youth of what he's seen as how you should treat women, how you should treat people that you love, how you should just treat other people in general, and how and why that crossed over into his teenage years because he was separated from his family at a at a young age. So the positive examples he had were taken away from him, but he's clung on to those memories. So I wanted to make sure that he wasn't a byproduct of this patriarchy because he is in the thick of it. He's right next to the king. The king is pushing all these things on him, but he's also realizing that he's being taken advantage of. He's also realizing that there's so many things that are wrong. And I really like the fact that he knows when to step up and to, to try to, intervene there are parts of the story where he does try to intervene and there are parts of the story where he wants to intervene but he can't and so i i think that that's really you know interesting for him from his point of view to know like the system is wrong even though i'm part of that system but how do we change it how do we change it indeed in in our <laughs> in our real world um I like your cover is beautiful. Can can you tell me a little bit about like what your reaction was to it? Did you have any input on the cover? I know that a lot of authors don't. Yeah, I have been blessed <laughs> with this cover. I'm looking at it right now, and it's just like it's one of those covers. I I need to make a poster out of it and, and put it on my wall because it is absolutely gorgeous. I was given the chance to give ideas to the artist. Um, so I, I sent over covers that I've liked. I sent over color palettes and some ideas that I had. Like, of course, we needed to have Manisha at the, at the, at the forefront of this, of this cover. Um, and Noni, who is the cobra around her neck. And when they told me who the artist is, which is 
Her name is Khadija. She has done a lot of Rick Riordan's books, especially his newer covers. I like squealed. <laughs> I was so excited because I, I know her work and I know that she was going to do an amazing job. And then she sent over sketches, which didn't look like sketches at all. They, they look like fully formed covers. And I was just blown away. So we made a few tweaks because they, they asked for my opinion. Um, and, you know, Khadija went with it. And the whole art department actually was very supportive of the entire process. And I just, yeah, I squealed again when I saw this picture, or when I saw the cover, because on a, a PDF uh, or PDF, JPEG, whatever, it's it's absolutely stunning. But in, in person, it's even more stunning to see the details because she has like little freckles, you know, on her cheeks. She has this glossy, these glossy lips. She has the like glowing eyes and everything. And then the back of the cover was brothish, which I was not expecting at all. This was a total surprise and a gift <laughs> to see him on the back cover. And his eyes are glowing. It's purple. It's it's everything. I just, yeah, I, I loved it. And I have the cover to the next book. So, and I love that one too, because it's also by Khadija. Uh, yeah. Speaking of your next book, like, um, like, can you share anything about it? Will we be seeing more uh, Greek and Indian mythology fusion? Yeah, I can't say anything concrete about it because I, I think we're going to uh, do a reveal in the next month or so. I hope, I think um, it does have to do with a different Greek mythology, but with the uh, Indian lore, like I mentioned Asura earlier, that plays a big theme in, in the second book. Um, in the ending of the book, kind of, not kind of, it tells you <laughs> who the next book is going to be about. So uh, readers will have to get to the end to see. And um, I do want to say that it is a correlating timeline. So it is not Manisha's story. It is a sister story. And it's happening at the same time that a drop of venom is happening. But they, like, I, I love all the little tidbits of how they cross paths, but they don't really know it. That's quite an ambitious timeline you you put for uh the plotting of of your characters. Yeah. I'm really excited I, to to pick up the the sequel and figuring out which Greek mythology you <laughs> decided to adapt. Yeah, I'm really excited too because I know Hindu mythology also has a lot of you know, epic battles between gods and things. So you know, lots of things that could be could be in your next book. That um, I think that, that's exciting. Thank you. I'm excited to show readers and to share with readers <laughs> <laughs> what it's about and the, especially the cover. Yeah. Well, I do know that you have another book that's coming out uh, in this year. Can you talk about that? <laughs> yeah. So that one is coming out in July 16th, I believe. It's called The Design of Us, which is an adult rom-com. It's a STEM romance about uh, two co-workers who are going after the same promotion and they end up uh, in Hawaii. And I go figure, we're right down the street from where I live. Um, they they end up in this uh, vacation in the same area. One's there for a wedding. One's there visiting family. And it leads to fake dating and destination wedding. And, you know, it's a feel-good story. Uh, totally opposite of what you're going to get for the sequel for a drop of it. <laughs> a palate cleanser, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, your book's been out for uh, a few weeks now. Um, how has that been having your book, you know, out in the world, people reading it? I, it's been exciting. I, I really appreciate when readers reach out to me to tell me how much they loved it or or even better when they tell me uh, how it impacted them because because it's about sexual assault. So many readers 
especially in the South Asian community, um, have told me that they don't really feel seen in that area. And so getting these messages of, of readers crying or seeing themselves or feeling so connected because of this thread of the story uh, has been the best part. Well, congratulations on your wife fantasy debut. Um, it's it's a really fun book. Um, we didn't even talk about your action scenes. Your book opens on like kind of in media res in the middle of a giant epic battle. And how was that experience writing? Like, because, uh, you know, coming from writing, you know, romance fiction to, you know, opening your book with like a big, you know, battle. Yeah, I'm, I envision things very cinematically in my head. Like, how would this look if this was a movie? And how would I describe the scene if I was watching this as a movie kind of a thing? I'm really, uh, um, what's the word, driven, lured, <laughs> whatever, by by emotion. And so I feel the emotion of the battle scenes. I, I feel like this is what's driving the characters. This is the rage that they feel or the fear or the thing that they need to accomplish in the scene. And the emotion of, of not of not winning, of losing something. Um, there's definitely a lot of those scenes in the second book where I'm like crying because I'm like, oh my God, this is so sad. <laughs> Why did this happen? And a lot of the times I don't know that this is going to happen until I write it. So this, I, I knew I wanted to open up with with a battle scene, but I was kind of expecting a, a battle against a monster, not necessarily what ended up being the opening scene. Um, but there is a, a bit more thought that has to go into that for me because I, I have to balance out the action with the imagery, with the emotion, with some kind of arc or growth or something else that's happening because there's so many battle scenes in, in the story and, and and also finding different ways to do a battle scene or or any type of conflict um, takes a little bit more thought for me. Yeah. Well, the book starts off with a bang and does not let up until the very end. Um, Sajni, thank you so much for joining us, Books and Boba. And yeah, good luck on on the second book. Good luck on your future endeavors. And hopefully we'll, we'll see you again on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you again so much for having me. And that was Sajni Patel, the author of A Drop of Venom, which is available now at booksellers everywhere, um, including, as always, the Books and Boba Bookshop. If you head to booksandboba.com and check out our bookstore, um, your purchases there not only support your local bookstores, but also us here at Books and Boba. So we really appreciate that. Um, but yeah, before we go, um, just a quick reminder that our February 2024 book club pick is Untethered Sky, um, a novella by Fonda Lee which follows the story of a girl on a quest to um, hunt down the monster that killed her family with the help of her giant bird, uh, which is a rock. Rock as an R-O-C, not like an actual like <laughs> yeah, stone the, rock. The giant mythological <laughs> bird from like Middle Eastern mythology. Um, we're looking forward to discussing this book with you all at the end of the month. Uh, Fonda Lee is one of my favorite writers, um, especially when it comes to like action-packed fantasy. So, um, excited to get into that. If you've already finished the book and have some thoughts to share, please let us know on either our Goodreads forums or our Discord server. Um, as always, we'd love to include the thoughts of our members in our podcast discussions whenever possible. Yeah, I mean, join our Patreon Discord because I love sharing book tea with y'all. So. <laughs> yeah, lots going on. <laughs> lots going on. <laughs> All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Um, we'll be back next week with our mid-month check-in for February 2024. But until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.
Brian. Did you go to Saturday school as a kid? I sure did. Did you? Totally. Well, at our podcast, Saturday School, we don't teach a language, but we pass along the culture that we do know. And that's Asian American pop culture. Ada's a journalist, and I'm a professor and film festival programmer. We've watched a lot of great Asian American movies, and we want you to watch them too. Come listen to us as we look back at the pioneering films that have led us to today. 